Thank you for tuning in to the True Suspense podcast, free to listeners and with no interruptions from advertising. If you enjoy our podcast, all we ask is that wherever you listen, kindly follow or subscribe and leave a review. Please note that Season 2 contains some limited descriptions of physical violence, so listener discretion is advised. Buckle up and get ready for True Suspense. I'm Arthur Perlstein, and I welcome you to the conclusion of The Chloroform Capers from our True Suspense podcast series here in Episode 5, Damaged Lives. We've been following two crimes committed by different people at different times eight years apart. In this final episode, the timeline of events surrounding the Kurt Kroboth vampire crime of 2004, an attempted murder, begin to catch up to the case of Mark Weiner, convicted of the 2012 abduction of Chelsea Steiniger. So, we will be looking at what happened in each case year by year. Because this episode is more lengthy, We'll break it down into three chapters. Chapter 1. End of the sentence. We start where we left off, when Kurt Kroboth was sentenced to prison in May of 2006. We learned last time that after the judge's sentence was corrected, it became possible that he could be released as early as 2011. And, believe it or not, that is precisely the year Kurt Kroboth was set free, albeit under probation. After his release, Kurt promptly moved to a house in Arizona owned by his parents. His probation supervision and community service requirement were coordinated between local probation authorities in Virginia and Arizona. Charlottesville Weekly newspaper The Hook, which, as mentioned previously, did some outstanding reporting on both the Kroboth and Weiner cases, attempted to reach Kurt for an interview, though they considered it a long shot given that he probably would want to lay low. But when the reporter rang a number in Arizona from an online listing associated with the Kroboth home, Nobody was more surprised than she when Kurt not only answered the phone, but participated in a wide-ranging interview that became an exclusive for The Hook. According to reporter Courtney Stewart, Kurt admitted his behavior had been, quote, shameful and humiliating, unquote. Nevertheless, he insisted that the prosecution had overreached Kurt claimed that his crime was, in reality, merely an assault that the prosecution had made into an attempted murder case. Directly from the interview, these are his words. Quote, If you think about it, there was no weapon. I came upon a sleeping person. Had I intended to kill someone, it would have been easy to do. Unquote. Apparently, he had forgotten about the knife he was carrying along with the chloroform and other supplies on that fateful Halloween night. But, according to Kurt, quote, It may sound hard to believe, but I didn't intend to inflict any harm, and I don't think I would have been capable of what I was accused of doing. Perhaps more audaciously, in the interview, Kurt placed much of the blame on his ex-wife and on the court system. Again, in his own words as reported by The Hook, quote, 
I was sentenced essentially to indentured servitude. My ex could travel the world, do whatever she wanted, while I was sentenced to work 80-hour weeks and see none of the proceeds, unquote. He also asserted that the $6,000 per month he'd been ordered to pay in the divorce proceedings, quote, came about through a considerable amount of fraud on the part of my ex-wife and obtusiveness and indifference on part of the judge, unquote. Kurt did not elaborate on what fraud he might have been referring to. One thing Kurt did not complain about was prison, calling it, quote, really not so bad, unquote. He confirmed having reached a financial settlement with Jane, his ex-wife, which meant he would have no continuing financial burden on that score. And while he was forbidden to have any contact with Jane, this did not apply to his sons, now aged 20 and 21, and he suggested he hoped to rebuild a relationship with them. The biggest concern Kurt had about his future involved the Internet. Again, Kurt's words from the interview. Quote, Anybody that goes on Google finds it. It's been six years now, and I can't get free of that. I move to another state. It doesn't matter. It's going to follow me, unquote. He expressed a similar concern about the news media, including the hook itself. Quote, you people don't take into account what effect you have on people's lives. Later that year, in December 2011, Hawes Spencer, editor of The Hook, received a registered letter from Kurt Kroboth. The letter complained that the hook had undertaken a, quote, ongoing attack on my reputation, unquote, citing, among other articles, the one from earlier in the year in which the hook reported on the interview Kurt had engaged in with the newspaper. Quote, I didn't intend my communications with you to be the subject of an article, unquote. The letter suggested he was prepared to seek monetary damages, claiming that a defamation lawsuit filed in Arizona would not require him to prove false information, only that it creates a false implication. Kurt suggested a, quote, simple and acceptable corrective measure that would not require removing anything, unquote. Specifically, Kurt insisted that online articles can be hidden from search engines by adding a line of computer code, and that the hook could thereby cloak the stories it had published. He suggested that this solution was, in effect, reasonable, because he was not asking for stories to be removed, only that they be hidden from search engines. Kurt gave the hook a strict deadline. The newspaper had 30 days to hide the news stories from search engines and to notify him when that was completed. Now, I don't want to wade too deeply into the law of defamation. The most favorable reading of Kurt's threat to sue would be that it was based on what is known as false light invasion of privacy. This type of claim can arise where someone publicly discloses uh, private details that are factual, but which portray a person as something he is not, and thereby creates a false impression. Many states in the U.S. do not recognize such a claim, but perhaps Kurt was correct that Arizona was one that did. There was at least one problem, however. To win a claim of false light invasion of privacy, there must be proof that the person or entity publishing the details knew the impression being created about the victim was false or acted with a reckless disregard as to its falsity. 
it is extremely difficult to imagine what false impression the hook or any other publication of the facts surrounding Kurt's conviction of attempted murder could have created. He did not specify in the letter what was false about the impression being created, nor did Kurt back up a claim he made in an interview he granted that the hook had attempted, quote, to spectacularize that incident and the circumstances. Well, the 30-day deadline passed early in 2012, with the hook declining to take any action. Mr. Spencer, the hook's editor, said he was always willing to correct any inaccuracies, but emphasized that Kurt Kroboth was not asking for a correction, but an expungement. In his words, quote, I think it is anathema to freedom of the press and openness, unquote. Kurt never did file a lawsuit against the hook, and, as we will see later, the hook had not yet written its last news story about Kurt Kroloff. Kurt managed to mostly stay out of the news in 2012. You will recall that was the year that, in December... Mark Weiner was accused of abducting Chelsea Steiniger. When last we left that case, Mark had been convicted of abduction with intent to defile in May 2013, with the jury recommending a 20-year sentence. Ford Childress, Mark's attorney, filed a motion to continue the sentencing to a later date, and Judge Higgins set a date for late in the summer. As it happened, the defense was able to get a further continuance, and no sentencing took place in 2013, though Mark continued to languish in jail. While not publicly disclosed at the time, a new set of attorneys began to review the case on behalf of Mark Weiner in September 2013, to determine whether they could undertake to get the verdict overturned based on some of the concerns that you may recall began to surface regarding the truthfulness of Chelsea. Meanwhile, 2013 was also a year in which Kurt Kroboth would again find himself in trouble. In January, Kurt obtained permission from his local probation and parole office in Arizona to travel to San Francisco for a vacation. The trip was scheduled for January 5th to 11th, and Kurt and a girlfriend drove from his home near Tucson. Unbeknownst to Arizona officials, Kurt's real plan was to travel to Eugene, Oregon, where the younger of his two sons was a student at the University of Oregon. Kurt was hoping to reconcile with his son and re-establish a relationship. When Kurt arrived in Eugene on January 6, he went to his son's residence, which he had been able to locate. His son was not home, but when his roommates answered the door, Kurt told them that he would return the next morning. When the son learned of this, he contacted police and tried to obtain a restraining order against his father. Officers went to the residence on January 7 and found Kurt sitting in a parked car with his girlfriend. Police contacted his parole officer and, learning that he had no permission to be in Oregon, instructed Kurt to return immediately to Arizona. But Kurt told police he intended to continue traveling in Oregon, which the officer told him was a very bad idea. In fact, days later, there were new travel plans for Kurt, and not of his own making. He ended up being sent back to Virginia, where he was arrested and taken to jail in Albemarle County, awaiting a hearing on the parole violation. The hearing was delayed from March 6, 
and didn't take place until Kurt was brought from jail to the hearing on May 2nd of 2013, the same month that Mark Weiner was tried and convicted in the same courthouse. Kurt testified that the issue was an innocent miscommunication between himself and the parole officer. San Francisco was to be the end point of his travel after Oregon, and therefore his paperwork was truthful in listing the city as his destination on paperwork with the parole officer. He said, quote, I'm a very literal person, and I'm a detail person, unquote. Kurt also explained that he was concerned his son might not have received the birthday presents and emails he sent, or his voicemail offering to buy Rose Bowl tickets to see the University of Oregon play against Kurt's alma mater, the University of Wisconsin. The prosecution strongly opposed letting Kurt off on the violation. The Commonwealth was represented by none other than Denise Lunsford, who would win a conviction against Mark Weiner later in the month. She insisted that Kurt should be sentenced to another nine months. The judge did not buy any of Kurt's arguments and sentenced him to six months. Since he had already been in jail for almost four months for the violation, he would remain behind bars for two more months. When Kurt was set free on June 21, he met with his probation officer in Charlottesville. She would write in her report that Kurt complained of being angry over continuing to be on probation after the six months in jail and said that he didn't feel he had done anything worthy of being placed on supervision. He also blamed his ex for his troubles with his son. The probation officer also wrote that, quote, he was very adamant that he was going to go to Arizona, but was not going to abide by the conditions that Arizona had stipulated for him, unquote. And indeed, upon his return to Arizona on June 24, Kurt refused to sign a conditions of probation form in Arizona. The probation office in Virginia told him to return to Albemarle County, but, according to Kurt, that was not something he could do. Denise Lunsford filed a motion to return Kurt to custody and he returned to Virginia on August 12 to report to the probation office, where he was once again placed under arrest. At a hearing on September 4, Kurt testified that he felt the restrictive terms of his Arizona probation interfered with his ability to take care of his parents and to complete his work duties. The same judge who had sentenced Kurt to six months back in May now would sentence him to yet another six months with supervised probation to resume upon his release. Kurt ended up staying back in jail until early in 2014. Speaking of 2014, there was considerable activity in the Mark Weiner case that year. Which brings us to Chapter 2, Motions and Emotions. By January, Mark had been sitting in jail for over a year when new attorneys formally took over his case. On January 16, Denise Lunsford received an email from Stephen Benjamin, a criminal defense attorney out of Richmond, Virginia. He was providing Denise with official notice that his firm was taking over representation. Steve Benjamin was a highly regarded attorney 
who had recently completed a stint as president of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. He and Denise were familiar with one another, and his note was cordial. After the formality about substitution of counsel, Steve explained that he wanted to schedule a time to meet with Denise. He wrote, quote, As always, I am interested in your assistance in learning and understanding everything I should know about this case. You know how much I appreciate your knowledge and preparation of the matters you handle. Thank you, Denise. It will be good to work with you. I hope you're doing well. Unquote. Denise and Steve ended up meeting on March 13. Steve sent a follow-up email the next day with the subject line, Matchbook. You will recall from a previous episode that the prosecution made Mark Weiner look bad on the stand when he testified about Chelsea having given him her phone number, which Mark claimed he wrote down on a matchbook. Mark was unable to explain why no such matchbook had been found, and that was the reference in the subject line. In the email to Denise, Steve thanked her for the meeting and mentioned having discussed failures of the defense in Mark's case. Quote, Those failures would be a sufficient basis for a new trial. And Steve mentioned a potential motion to vacate the verdict. But he then added, quote, I would like to work with you further, however, to assist you in determining whether the prosecution should be dismissed entirely. In addition to everything known about Chelsea's conduct, parens, for example, accessing and deleting the 911 voicemail, and the contradictory cell tower information, we now know that she gave Mark her phone number. He wrote it down on a matchbook, just as he said to Sergeant Walls when he was first questioned. Unquote. Steve attached to the email pages from the trial transcript with Mark's testimony that Chelsea had given him her number and the cross-examination which undermined that testimony. He also attached a photograph of the matchbook and phone number. On March 26, Steve drove from Richmond to Charlottesville to meet with Denise and discuss some information and questions. The following day, two weeks after the March 13 matchbook email, Steve sent the following message. Quote, Thank you for talking with me yesterday. The information I shared with you proves that Chelsea committed perjury when she testified that she was abducted. If you disagree, please let me know. In light of what we have discovered, Mark should be released immediately, unquote. Steve also let Denise know that he would be filing a motion to set aside the verdict, and he attached a subpoena for the AT&T phone records. Less than 10 minutes later came the prosecutor's one-sentence reply. Quote, Steve, I disagree with your analysis. Minutes later came Steve's even shorter response. Quote, Can you tell me why? But Denise declined to answer. Instead, she complained that Steve had filed a motion that the public could now see and simply said that he would have to wait to hear her official response. Steve reminded Denise that he had told her when they met that he would have to file a motion for the subpoena of records, which he said was necessarily a public filing, but he insisted that he had not circulated the motion and was, quote, still hoping that we can work together for the right result, unquote. Emails would continue back and forth with Steve pointing out discrepancies, particularly from the phone records. But Denise would not budge. 
So on April 14, 2014, Steve Benjamin filed a motion to set aside the guilty verdict that had been rendered against his client, Mark Weiner. Because the motion contained extensive details of new evidence and other problems surrounding the case, much of what follows will be quotations, sometimes lengthy, directly from the motion. The introduction in the motion came right to the point and laid out a very different version of what had happened on the fateful night. Quote, Mark Weiner was convicted of a crime that never occurred. Chelsea Steiniger, the Commonwealth's only witness to that so-called crime, fabricated an abduction to manipulate and provoke her boyfriend, Michael Mills, when he said he would not let her stay at his apartment after 11.30 p.m. on December 12th. Chelsea walked from the boyfriend's apartment on Grady Avenue to a Lucky 7 convenience store, where she received a ride from Mark Weiner. When they arrived at her mother's apartment, she gave him her phone number and got out. Chelsea then began texting a made-up story to her boyfriend, pretending she had been abducted. She refused to answer her boyfriend's calls and began sending him texts pretending to be the abductor. When the boyfriend said he was calling the police, she stopped pretending to be the abductor, called the boyfriend and sent texts saying that she had escaped and was hiding in the woods. She refused the boyfriend's request that she call 911. She refused to answer two calls from the Police Emergency Communications Center. And after listening to a message on her phone from the emergency center asking that she call them so they could locate her, she deleted the phone's record of the call and stopped using her phone. Unquote. The motion went on to argue that the whole thing was part of a fraudulent scheme concocted by Chelsea that started off with a, quote, passive-aggressive, attention-getting game with her boyfriend by calling him and pretending to be hiding from her abductor, unquote. To pull off the scheme, it went on to say, quote, Chelsea had to explain how the abductor texted from a phone she still had, how she was abducted without a struggle, injuries, or restraints, and why she never called 911, unquote. Now, many of you may wonder, as I did at first, if Chelsea simply intended to get attention from her boyfriend and get back at him for refusing to let her spend the night, why did she continue to insist on her story later when police interviewed her? The memorandum of law supporting the motion gives at least a partial explanation. The message that the 911 dispatcher had left instructed Chelsea to call so they could map her location. Chelsea received this message at 1.09 a.m. According to the memorandum, quote, Having been told that the police could locate her using the cell phone, Chelsea turned it off to avoid having the police discover she was really at home. She waited almost an hour, and then around 2 a.m., she called her boyfriend from a different phone and discovered the police were at his apartment. The police officer insisted on speaking with her, and she was forced to continue her fraud to avoid getting into trouble." Unquote. This was followed in the motion by a detailed recital of evidentiary problems. Remember that Chelsea had claimed that her phone battery had died a couple of minutes after her escape into the woods, that she received no calls from her boyfriend after that, 
and that she was unable to use her phone until she walked the two miles or so to her mom's place and charged it. She also claimed she never received a voicemail from the 911 operator. But it turns out police had obtained AT&T mobility usage records, and a detective, Greg Anastopoulos, had a recorded conversation with an AT&T rep who explained what the records showed. The recording was not made available to Mark's defense until after the trial was over. According to the motion, the records showed, among other things, that the phone was not dead. Instead, Chelsea had calls back and forth with her boyfriend three times after the time she claimed the battery had died. The calls from the emergency center had gone through to her phone, and Chelsea had used the phone to retrieve the message telling her to call. Significantly, between midnight and 2.15 a.m., quote, Chelsea's phone accessed the two AT&T cell towers near her mother's apartment dozens of times and never accessed the cell tower closest to the abandoned house, unquote. The motion also provided information from Mark's cell phone records. GPS evidence showed that Mark was close to his home 17 miles away from the abandoned house at a time well before he could have gotten there if he had left that house where he allegedly held Chelsea when she claimed he had. The issue of the matchbook also was highlighted in the motion. Law enforcement had not collected the many matchbooks that were in the driver's door pocket, but Ford Childress, Mark's previous attorney, had, and that is when he discovered the matchbook with Chelsea's cell phone number written down. As argued in the motion, the prosecutor, quote, vigorously cross-examined Mark Weiner about his testimony that Chelsea had given him her phone number and effectively impeached him with the apparent falsity of his claim, unquote. Further, Steve Benjamin pointed out in the motion that, quote, in closing argument, the Commonwealth argued that Mark was lying because the phone number was not found in the van, unquote. Ford Childress had apparently misplaced and forgot about the matchbook when he was defending Mark in court. There was also evidence, according to the motion, that Chelsea had admitted to others that she was lying. This included text messages from her boyfriend Michael Mills in which Mills had asked, quote, Why did you lie to me? Unquote. In addition, Chelsea had spoken with her jailed husband, Howard Steiniger, three times about the incident. In her first story to Howard, Chelsea, quote, claimed to have jumped out of the van after the driver attempted to put something over her face and she fought the driver off. She made no mention of an abandoned house or unconsciousness, unquote. Her second story to Howard included the part about being made unconscious. But in June of 2013, quote, Chelsea told Howard Steiniger that she was going to take care of it when he expressed doubts about the truthfulness of her trial testimony against Mark Weiner, given her prior stories about the incident and her general reputation for untruthfulness. She explained that the entire event had been, in her words, an elaborate scam to piss off a man that had gone horribly wrong. 
and then the motion addressed the matter of the chloroform-soaked bandana that Chelsea claimed Mark had used to quickly render her unconscious. The motion attached an affidavit from Dr. John R. Jaynes, Jr., an expert anesthesiologist familiar with volatile liquids used as inhalants to produce unconsciousness. Among other things, Dr. Jaynes, like Dr. Baker, who we spoke with in earlier episodes, concluded that, quote, the unconsciousness could not have occurred as described, that there is, quote, no volatile anesthetic which will render an adult completely unconscious in 10 to 15 seconds, that it would take several minutes of continuous administration at proper concentrations with a cooperative patient to render the person unconscious, unquote. Further, Dr. Jaynes concluded that even that would require use of a calibrated vaporizer, and a person would not stay unconscious for 20 minutes unless there was sustained administration of a volatile anesthetic. Overall, the motion to set aside the verdict and the supporting memorandum of law argued that, quote, the evidence of Mark Weiner's innocence is overwhelming, but through the perjury of Chelsea Steininger, the constructive fraud of counsel in permitting Chelsea's perjury and letting it go unrebutted, and the ineffectiveness of defense counsel, the jury failed to appreciate the impossibility of Chelsea's story and was denied the exculpatory evidence of the cell phone records, unquote. I should mention that the argument of ineffective assistance of counsel is often used where the court has had to appoint an attorney for a defendant unable to afford it. But Mark had selected and paid for the services of Ford Childress. Much to Ford's credit, he fell on his sword. He readily admitted the mistakes he had made and fully cooperated with Steve Benjamin in his efforts to undo the guilty verdict. Indeed, a sworn affidavit from Ford Childress was attached to the motion to set aside the verdict. The motion was covered intensely by the local press, and what appeared to be overwhelming evidence of deceit and injustice it exposed caused outrage across the community. Denise Lunsford argued in response, albeit not very convincingly, that the phone records had been misinterpreted by the defense, and she insisted most of the motion was irrelevant. In the reply to the motion, she wrote, quote, The Commonwealth urges the court to restrict its consideration of the facts to those presented at trial. A determination to do otherwise will open every jury verdict to a challenge based on the evidence that the defense might have presented at trial, unquote. Chelsea Steiniger herself spoke out. In an interview reported by Lisa Province on Seville.com, Chelsea said, quote, People have called me a liar, and it's just not true. I feel like they've smeared my name all over. It's affected me and my life a lot, unquote. Judge Cheryl Higgins held a hearing on the motion on June 3, 2014. Despite the large amount of evidence of fraud on the court and ineffective assistance of counsel, Judge Higgins denied the motion. While she did not dispute most of the points raised by defense counsel, she relied on a technicality to hold that she did not have jurisdiction to overturn the verdict. 
Mark Weiner would continue to languish in jail where he had already been for a year and a half. The judge set sentencing for late July, but it would end up being continued at the request of Mark's counsel. The ruling in court sparked even more widespread outrage. Many attorneys spoke on or off the record as to their view of how great the miscarriage of justice had been. Mark's family was devastated. After the hearing, Mark's brother commented, quote, We are just outraged a man's innocence is not relevant here. It goes to the fabric of our community, unquote. Now let's fast forward a few months to December 8th, about two years since Mark Weiner had been thrown in jail. Denise Lunsford receives an email from Mark's attorney, Steve Benjamin. Attached to it is a new motion to set aside the verdict and new exhibits. Steve's email explained that the Motion is premised on our very recent identification of new witnesses and discovery of new evidence. He also requested that a hearing on it be set for December 17th, just over a week later. But Denise was away, and the judge was not available. Ultimately, a new hearing would not take place until May of 2015, several months away. The year is now 2015. In March, Kurt Kroboth would appear in a California court to ask a judge to grant him the ability to change his name. He stated the reason in his filing with the court. Quote, Petitioner's present name is inconvenient and embarrassing. Petitioner is already known by and wishes to be known by his proposed name in all social and business affairs. Unquote. In May, the judge granted Kurt Krobot's request. Unfortunately for Kurt, this did not help him with keeping a low profile. As reported in the Mercury News out of San Jose, California, John Zug, an assistant prosecutor working for Denise Lunsford, said he, quote, laughed out loud when he learned of the name change because he knew Krobot's public criminal file would also appear under the new name. Quote, there is no doubt that Mr. Krobot was attempting to escape his online past. And Zug added that the new media coverage about the issue would, quote, totally torpedo his attempt. I figured it was a waste of money on Mr. Krobot's part, unquote. That month was when the hearing on Steve Benjamin's new motion on behalf of Mark Weiner took place. On May 6th, the court heard from three new witnesses who introduced an interesting new angle about the unfamiliar abandoned house to which Chelsea had said Mark had brought her. All three testified that they had been with Chelsea at that very location to party, smoking pot and drinking, several times in the months prior to the alleged abduction. And one of them testified that he had previously lived at the house, which was owned by his stepfather. This gave the lie to her claim under oath that she had never been there before. The defense also submitted a sworn affidavit of Michael Mills, saying that Chelsea had admitted to him on multiple occasions that she concocted the story against Mark Weiner because Michael had ordered her out of his home, and she thought he would take her back if she said she was the victim of a crime. And finally, the defense submitted police reports casting doubt on Chelsea's truthfulness. For example, in a report from January 1 of 2015, 
a Charlottesville police officer, wrote that Chelsea admitted she was fibbing when she said Michael Mills had struck her in the face. Months later, after another heated confrontation, the same officer ended up bringing Michael to the magistrate to seek a protective order against Chelsea. Denise Lunsford tried to undermine the testimony of the three witnesses, pointing out some minor inconsistencies and suggesting that because it was, quote, a dark night, it was conceivable she didn't recognize having been there before, unquote. And she argued that Michael's affidavit reported on matters of domestic abuse, which she said was, quote, not relevant here in respect to the reliability of the victim. She also suggested it was suspicious that Michael signed the affidavit after Chelsea had reported abuse. And Denise also had harsh words about attorney Steve Benjamin, whom she blamed for the long delay in the sentencing of Mark Weiner. She also accused the defense of, quote, using the media to create a monster in the form of the Commonwealth trying to railroad the defendant. At the end of the hearing, Judge Higgins promised to take the matter under advisement and issue a decision, either to set aside the verdict or sentence Weiner to prison on June 9th. The wait was more than a month, and on June 9th, everyone reassembled in the courtroom. Judge Higgins declared that the testimony from the new witnesses did not meet the standard of demonstrating that the jury would have reached a different verdict had they heard it at the time of the trial. As to the police reports, the judge said she found they did not prove that Chelsea was, quote, inherently incredible, unquote. The motion to set aside the verdict, in other words, was denied. Those in the courtroom, including members of Mark's family, gasped. It was now time for sentencing, and the judge heard testimony about Mark the family man, the so-called gentle giant, the giving and upstanding member of the community. Denise Lunsford mentioned previous allegations that Mark had made unwelcome advances toward women, but not even a police report was ever filed. At the end, Judge Higgins asked Mark Weiner if he had anything to say on his own behalf. Quote, I am innocent. Please don't sentence me for something I didn't do. Unquote. And the judge then announced the sentence. Twenty years in prison, with twelve years suspended, and credit for the two and a half years he had already served. In other words, the total sentence was for eight years, and Weiner had five and a half years to go. For perspective, Bear in mind, this was longer than the sentence for Kurt Kroboff for the attempted murder of his wife. The furor over the judge's decision was palpable across the Charlottesville legal and law enforcement community and among the general public as well. Mark's attorney, Steve Benjamin, did not mince words when he spoke to the press outside the courthouse immediately afterwards. This is the criminal justice system at its very worst, and you've witnessed it for two and a half years now. We, we go about our ways, you know, free and happy with this naive belief that we're protected from unjust accusations. And that if, if the worst happens and we're arrested and accused of something we didn't do, that we can come to a court of law and prove our innocence. Who believes that anymore? If it can happen to Mark Weiner, it can happen to any one of you standing here. Believe that. That's wrong. This is a tragedy. Steve also expressed concern about the health of his client 
who had recently had surgery to remove a bladder tumor. Quote, Mark's health is so perilous that I have real concerns about whether he can survive another year. As for Denise Lunsford, despite the enlarged mountain of evidence, she explained why none of this mattered. Quote, I interviewed the victim twice, and I believed her. Unquote. Denise also said she was pleased with the eight-year sentence. Although Steve Benjamin vowed to fight on, Mark Weiner's fate seemed sealed, and that was that. Barely a month later, July 8, 2015, out of the blue, Steve received an email from Denise. It said only the following, quote, Steve, I need to talk to you immediately. Please call me on my cell. Well, Steve wasted no time and could scarcely believe what Denise had to say. She'd recently learned that Chelsea Steiniger had been caught selling cocaine to two undercover police officers. Although Denise said that she had not known of it, it was her responsibility to have disclosed this evidence favorable to the defense ahead of the May 6, 2015 hearing they had had. She still believed Chelsea, she said, but Denise thought the drug-dealing allegations disturbed the appearance of fairness in the case. She was prepared to work with Steve, she said, in asking the judge to vacate the verdict. After some back and forth over wording, Steve drafted a motion calling for Mark's conviction to be vacated. Denise joined in the motion. A hearing was scheduled for July 14. On that day, Mark Weiner was brought to the courtroom yet again, this time wearing prison stripes and handcuffs. At the end of a brief hearing, the same Judge Cheryl Higgins, who had previously said she had no legal authority to undo a conviction, exercised her authority to do that very thing, and Mark Weiner was suddenly a free man. Mark's family celebrated with him as he was set free. His brother said that his family knew the crime had never occurred, and they, quote, always knew he'd be free, unquote. Mark's wife, Flo, who never stopped insisting on her husband's innocence, sobbed openly. This is Flo. I, I can't even put it into words um, how happy I am. Attorney Steve Benjamin put it succinctly. Innocence this day won out. An article soon after in Slate magazine that brought the case to national attention commented perhaps best in response to Denise Lunsford referring to the drug sale involving Chelsea Steiniger as, quote, the straw that broke the camel's back, unquote. This suggested, wrote Slate journalist Dahlia Lithwick, that Denise, quote, knew this camel had been overloaded for a long, long time. Chapter 3. After Effects Lastly, some tidbits of follow-up on some of the lead characters in the Chloroform Capers, and a few final thoughts. In August of 2015, the man formerly known as Kurt Kroboth got into trouble again. He was picked up and brought to jail for yet another parole violation, 
this time in California. Ironically, his arrest stemmed from a sworn assertion on his name change application that he was not under the control of the California parole system. Kurt, now officially named Oscar, that's his first name, had taken up a quiet life in a town near the Bay Area, working for his own small business as a tutor of French, math, and test preparation. One of his students wrote the following in a review online, quote, Oscar is one of the nicest people I've ever met. My mother and I were looking for a last-minute, low-budget tutor before my ACT, and we were lucky to find Oscar, unquote. After his arrest, his girlfriend referred to him as, quote, a 60-year-old man just trying to get through life who has paid and paid, unquote. She described him as an upstanding citizen and a community volunteer. After several days, it was decided not to prosecute Oscar for what a California parole spokesman referred to as a technical violation. You may recall from an earlier episode that the position of Commonwealth's attorney, the one held by Denise Lunsford for Albemarle County, is an elected one in Virginia. When Mark Weiner was set free in July of 2015, Denise had already started her campaign for re-election. The vote was set for that very November. Her opponent made the largest issue in the campaign the way Denise had handled the Mark Weiner case, focusing on what he called unfair and unprofessional behavior, especially her efforts to keep out the information from the cell phone records. When the election came around less than four months after the conviction was vacated, the public expressed its displeasure with Denise by voting her out of office. She became a private citizen, which she remains to this day. In July of 2017, two years after his release, Mark Weiner, who had since moved with his family back to Maryland, filed a lawsuit against Albemarle County as well as its Office of Commonwealth's Attorney. The complaint was lengthy, but here is a small part of it summarizing the circumstances. Quote, As a direct and proximate result of defendant's conduct, Mark Weiner suffered injuries, including loss of liberty, personal physical injuries, lost income, and emotional harm. Defendant's conduct toward Mark Weiner was extreme outrageous, intolerable, and exceeded all bounds of decency, unquote. Mark was represented in this civil lawsuit by Barton Keyes, a prominent trial lawyer out of Ohio with special expertise in wrongful conviction. He knew there would be a major hurdle, but felt the circumstances were particularly egregious in that it seems, quote, the prosecutor was thinking her sole role was to secure a conviction, when in reality a prosecutor's job is to secure justice, unquote. The major hurdle was the doctrine of sovereign immunity. Simply put, this means that unless the government gives its consent, it is not subject to a lawsuit and that includes its offices and agents acting within the scope of their duties. There are certain exceptions, and some statutes automatically give government consent in specified circumstances. The defendants filed a motion to dismiss the case, and in January of 2018, a federal judge in Virginia issued his ruling the lawsuit could not go forward because Albemarle County 
and its Commonwealth's attorney were immune from suit. The court did acknowledge the horrible circumstances. Quoting from the court's decision, The facts giving rise to this lawsuit are tragic. A man appears to have been wrongly accused, convicted, and imprisoned based on a fabrication, and the conviction was procured, allegedly, with the prosecutor's knowledge that the criminal case wasn't up to snuff." Unquote. In August of 2017, as is widely known, the liberal university town of Charlottesville picked up an undeserved reputation. White supremacist James Alex Fields Jr. deliberately drove his car into a crowd of people peacefully protesting the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, killing one person and injuring 35 others. Fields could not afford a lawyer, and the public defender had a conflict of interest. The court therefore appointed a private attorney to handle his defense. The name of that attorney? Denise Lunsford. Fields was convicted in state court on multiple counts, including first-degree murder, five counts of aggravated malicious wounding, three counts of malicious wounding, and one hit-and-run count for injuring dozens of others with his vehicle. The judge followed the jury's recommendations and sentenced him to life plus 419 years. Fields was also charged in federal court for hate crimes. To avoid a death penalty, he pled guilty to 29 of 30 counts, earning him another life sentence. Chelsea Steiniger ended up having two children with her boyfriend, Michael Mills. The relationship continued to be stormy, with numerous complaints of violence filed with the police by one against the other. In a 2018 case, Chelsea accused Michael of punching her. Despite evidence introduced by Michael's attorney that Chelsea had filed admittedly false reports in the past, the judge found him guilty of assault and battery. And now for some final thoughts about these cases. In each of the cases we've talked about here in the chloroform capers, more than one commentator referred to the surrounding circumstances as being like, quote, out of a B-movie, unquote. In one, a Halloween attack by a man dressed as a vampire carrying chloroform and a knife against a woman who turns out to be his wife. In the other, a tale of a woman abducted after being offered a ride, knocked out with a chloroform-like substance, and taken to an abandoned house. But these were not tales of fiction, but real and serious matters that disrupted and seriously damaged the lives of multiple people. In the case of Kurt Krobov, police failed to follow up on an important lead, thereby ignoring potential deadly violence against a woman. Some might question the prosecution's decision to agree to a plea bargain, but no question of ethics or misconduct on the part of the Commonwealth's Attorney's Office. Kurt Krobov had everything going for him, but his crime ruined everything for him. It left his wife emotionally scarred and his two sons essentially without a father. As for Mark Weiner, in addition to his loss of freedom, he also lost his job, his home, and his retirement savings. But in this case, there was no failed investigation by police. The detectives were ready to share evidence that raised great doubt on Weiner's guilt and probably would have freed him after the trial without two and a half years behind bars. The wrongful conviction of Mark Weiner was due to many factors, 
not least of which was a prosecutor who believed the alleged victim over physical evidence and over experienced police investigators, and a judge who claimed her hands were tied even in the face of overwhelming proof of Mark's innocence. One lesson for sure is that judges, lawyers, and juries, like the rest of us, are not so good at assessing credibility, even though we may think we are. Chelsea Steiniger seemed more believable on the stand as she testified to a complicated string of lies than did Mark Weiner, who truthfully professed his innocence. And as for the chloroform, it seems surprising that the very intelligent and meticulous Kurt Krobuff failed to adequately research the chemical that he simply assumed would quickly subdue his wife. Because the Krobov case was highly publicized in the Charlottesville area years before the Mark Weiner case, I cannot help but think that Chelsea had heard about it. It's entirely possible, but of course we'll never know for sure, that Chelsea got the chloroform idea, whether consciously or subconsciously, from the news of Kurt Krobov and the attempted murder of his wife. If so, of course, she drew the same wrong lesson as Kurt did about the properties of chloroform after he failed to do his homework. Ironically, the very properties of chloroform helped create an ending to these stories that was much happier than they might have been. In Kurt's case, his wife was able to struggle and fight back because the chloroform did not stop her. In Mark Weiner's case, the truth about chloroform helped fuel the outcry against the wrongful conviction, ultimately leading to the decision of Denise Lunsford and Judge Cheryl Higgins to let Mark Weiner go free, even if it was ironically attributed to Chelsea trying to sell $100 worth of cocaine, rather than to the enormous weight of evidence demonstrating that she was a liar. Speaking of the chloroform in the Weiner case, I'll end on this note. On July 22, 2015, after Mark was set free, Denise Lunsford admitted to a newspaper that she was, quote, not sure how it works. I haven't talked to an expert. We were never able to determine what the substance was, unquote. I would say perhaps that was because there was no substance, and for that matter, no substance to any part of the tangled web of a story Chelsea Steinecker had woven. Thank you for listening to The Chloroform Capers, part of the True Suspense podcast series. Written and narrated by me, Arthur Perlstein. Music, sound engineering, and post-production by Guy Bainbridge and Walls End Studios. Be sure to visit truesuspense.com for more information about this podcast and other True Suspense productions.